Welcome to episode number 38 of the Four Animals for Earth podcast, jewelry that protects wildlife and traditional craft in Africa with Kimber Leblik. Wildlife conservation is a viable livelihood in Kenya. And, um, you know, we believe women need to be at the forefront of that industry too. That was Kimber LeBleek. She is the convener and curator of Kimber Elements. Kimber Elements is a social enterprise that's focused on sculpting the bonds between women and wildlife in Kenya. As we get started, I would love for you to go look up their jewelry just so that you can have it in mind as we talk. It's a really cool combination of beadwork that is traditional to the women in Kenya that work on the project and then metal work that Kimber has studied over the years and really perfected her style too. It's it's a really cool combo. So go check it out. It's at KimberElements.com and at KimberElements on Instagram. And while you're looking, I'll tell you the fun story about how Kimber and I met. We really met by chance through um, social media and through people that we have gotten to know over the years. So if you guys remember, a year ago in episode two, Laura Choi was on and she is the president of Fashion for Conservation. And she was telling me that her favorite store on earth is called Curaco and it's located in Seattle. So you know, I did her show notes, um, moved on. And a couple of months ago, I was on Pinterest and I got randomly, you know, matched up with Curaco. And I thought, that sounds so familiar. How do I know Curaco? And so I looked it up and I was like, sure enough, that was the store that Laura mentioned. And Kimber sells jewelry at Curaco. So after connecting with Curaco, I then connected with Kimber. And it's just really fun how sometimes this world can feel small. And um, that's kind of what excites me and keeps me going. So the simple idea for today's episode is to look up the store behind products before we purchase them. And specifically, if you're passionate about helping wildlife, look for brands that support economic independence for families that are living in these rural areas where wildlife conflict is at risk. And at the end of the episode, we'll tell you about a couple of ways that you can do that. So for today's show notes, go to foranimalsforearth.com slash podcast slash 38. Hi there, this is Brandy, and you're listening to the Four Animals for Earth podcast. This is a space where we inspire each other to take small steps every day to live a more conscious life, helping animals and the planet while we do it. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's all take a deep breath and let's get started. So can we start off with, can you tell us what is Kimber Elements? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for hosting me today. So it's a great intro and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and I'm glad we found each other. Um, so Kimber Elements is a female forward social enterprise. Uh, we create unique modern jewelry that celebrates traditional craft and promotes wildlife conservation. So we do that by providing economic stability uh, by paying our artisans fair wages. So that enables them to support their families and provide education for their children. 
And in addition, our artisans are learning business skills that collectively um, reinvest a portion of their wages in micro-businesses to produce alternate sources of income. And then a portion of our sales provides scholarships for our artisans' daughters to study and pursue a career in wildlife conservation. Can you talk a little bit about the micro-business piece? What does that mean? They take mm -hmm. part of their earnings and reinvest them in micro-businesses. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, not only do they make an income from their jewelry sales um, and they uh, determine the price that we pay. So that's how we define fair wages. And then when um, the jewelry sells and they get paid, um, they also collectively decide what to do with their revenue as a community. So um, they're investing in micro businesses in order to get alternative sources of sustainable income. And what they've done so far is they've collectively invested in beehives so they can produce honey. Um, they're pastoralists. I'm working with the Maasai community in Kenya. So they also uh, buy livestock and that to them is their currency, their savings account. And for women to have access to livestock is a big deal. Um, <clears throat> it's mostly the men who have the livestock and are the, the herders. So um, for women to invest in themselves and have their own savings account and their own economy is very important. And also during these times, it also helps them so they're not relying just on jewelry sales. So they also have other um, income opportunities and um, having those income opportunities also helps them have a sustainable livelihood. So they're not relying on other means of like unsustainable income, which is like charcoal, selling charcoal, which is charcoal burning, um, wildlife poaching, bushmeat. So um, they're investing in other reliable sources of income. And then it also helps them provide for their families and also um, pay for their children to stay in school. That's really incredible that they are, um, I guess, number one, so community focused mm -hmm. and coming together in in pooling money that they make to work together to all grow and then also just the um i guess the the wherewithal or the future strategic thinking bigger thinking of being able to do that do you is that do you think that comes from their culture Absolutely. It's like the collective culture. Um, you know, what I'm learning, I'm learning a lot working with this community. They're teaching me a lot. Um, so this is not my culture. So um, it's hard for me to speak for them. But what I have been learning is that, you know, it's not about the individual. It's about the collective. And it's because resources are scarce. And so as a community, you know, they share food, they share resources, they share, you know, um, their communal land. So it is very much about the collective. Um, and it's, you know, because they are, um, have limited resources and some are experiencing poverty. So it's very much a part of their culture. You know, it's um, not that there's a benefit to that, obviously, mm -hmm. but, you know, just comparing that to the culture of a lot of us here in the United States where, um, it feels like there's been a disconnect from that community uh, mm -hmm. aspect and just the community realization of pooling things together to help everyone and help the collective and not necessarily um, 
trying to get mine and hoard mine, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think um, is not anything that, that anyone consciously does, but I do feel a little bit like that's almost like the mentality or the philosophy that a lot of us have grown up with here in the States, maybe over the past 30 years, or maybe we didn't grow up with it. We just automatically became that way because the scarcity didn't exist. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it is, but it really sounds um, very inspiring to hear communities working together, thinking of each other. And it makes me hope that the rest of the world, even those of us in these developed countries that don't experience the scarcity can learn from and somehow continue to come together in that way where we're all supporting each other um, and working together to grow. I think there's a lot to be learned, like you said. Yeah, agreed. And I think, you know, just there's a lot of sociological, cultural, environmental reasons for that. Um, You know, we all experience that in our different cultures. But I think, you know, during this pandemic, that made us really realize the importance of community, no matter where we lived. Um, and how we were experiencing this. So, mm-hmm. And I do feel like we're starting to see a movement here in the States back to community focus. Um, you know, I don't know if you feel like you're seeing that as well. And sometimes I wonder if it's just, you know, living in LA where LA does, LA just by design is a lot of kind of small towns. It's, it's, there's not really like a big center of the city there. Obviously there's downtown LA, but that's not really seen as kind of like the center of the city. It's very much kind of like small towns making up the big city. And I do see LA being a place where people kind of come together in their little communities, maybe more so than some of the other places I've lived. Um, so I don't know if it's if it's just kind of an evolution that we're all getting back to community or if it's just that LA is kind of designed that way. Um, but it does feel like there's been more embracing of um, just farmers markets, like local parks, just things to bring people together. And then obviously to your point with COVID kind of stopped, but now we all know how much we miss it too, right? Yeah. 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 So in, um, can you tell us a little bit about the culture that you work with? So you said it was the Maasai, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Um, what part of the, what part of the, I mean, I know they live in Kenya. What part Mm -hmm. of Kenya do they live in? And, um, yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, sure. So, um, I traveled to Kenya in 2019, Um, And I visited Kenya to really understand the complexities of human and wildlife conflict and to really observe how Kenya is at the forefront of implementing really interconnected solutions to this really challenging and complex situation. And, you know, the most important lesson I learned is that it's really critical for people to support conservation and for conservation to support people. So during my travels, I met an indigenous community um, who expressed their desire to create a market-driven solution to generate social and environmental change. And they invited me to collaborate with them to create an artisan group, um, which is uh, 30 Maasai women. And so I feel like I'm an honored, humbled guest um, to be an outsider and to be involved with their community. So. Um, Our partners um, 
are um, Isaiah and Naomi. They're our project managers. And Isaiah is a conservation guide. And it's in the Ambicelli Savo uh, ecosystem, which is a popular tourist destination. It's in Southern Kenya. And his wife is a school teacher and it's Naomi, her name's Naomi. And the two of them really wanted to build this collective. And during our conversations, they learned that I am a jewelry designer. And so that just kind of led to like me asking questions about their jewelry. And, you know, there was just a natural connection there. So yeah, our jewelry is made by Maasai women in that area. And, um, you know, our joint collaboration is really celebrating and preserving their traditional craft. Well, you know, creating this beautiful jewelry, which, you know, in their tradition is for beautification. Um, and it's both worn by men and women. And um, yeah, so we just kind of had this collaborative process where we co-design together and we do it via WhatsApp and sketches and photos and chats. And we just got, go back and forth. So we've got like an iterative design process. and I. I still think we're learning our design chops. Um, you know, we've come a long way in a year and, um, you know, it's like a blending of and a combination of our strengths, which I really love. So kind of my background as a metalsmith and their traditional beadwork um, and their patterns, I think uh, they complement each other really nicely. They definitely complement each other really nicely. And it's neat to see um, the textures, I think, come together. And then knowing that there's a story behind them is even even stronger. Um, mm. How cool that you guys work on WhatsApp. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> fun. <laughs> yeah. You have the ability to get on video, I guess, and chat and send. I mean, it's mm. fun. It shows just one of the, um, I guess, tactical ways that you get these things done on two yeah. different sides of the world. Absolutely, yeah, and how tech's involved and how technology really is bringing us closer, um, you know, just on a different part of the world. You know, before we got on for this conversation, I was like, my partner's, you know, he's on WhatsApp. And so this is normally the time of day that we communicate um, and check in with each other. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, barriers, which also become our opportunities, right? So it's like, you know, they have limited access to resources and, you know, for ship international shipping. And, you know, there's a lot of things and access to beads. And uh, sometimes my partner doesn't have access to internet. And, you know, it's just, it's just something we have to work through. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's interesting because I feel like although it could be hard, it actually sounds exciting because it's like all these challenges that you get to work mm -hmm. through. And I guess I guess it's exciting because you have two people on the other end who, you know, you both have the same goals, the same um, dreams and hopes for what it will be. And so you can you have people to work together. And I guess I, I feel like I always believe that when there are people who want the same things and are working together, there's always a solution. Like that whole idea of two brains become three, right? So yeah. um, I, I would think, yeah, really exciting. Um, did you say, I know you said her name is Naomi. Did you say his mm -hmm. name's Isaiah? I'm Isaiah. trying to remember. Isaiah. Okay. Um, so the two of them, they live um, in this area, and you said he does wildlife conservation. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, I know you've described the area they live in to me before, about how it's on the edge, I think, of a 
conservation. Can you talk a little bit about that and then maybe a little bit about his part of what he does? Mm -hmm. Sure. So he studied wildlife uh, conservation and um, tourism, like a guide. So he's a, a conservation guide um, and he's Maasai. And so he works at a local camp, which is um, around the perimeter of Amboseli National Park. So um, the women I'm working with are in Kamana Village and Kamana Village is one of the closest villages to Amboseli. And so he works with one of the camps. He does um, guided walks, you know, guided tours to Amboseli. And he really talks about like the local flora and the fauna and the animals. He's like so knowledgeable. I mean, I've just learned so much from him about his deep knowledge of like the land and wildlife and he's deeply committed to conservation. And, um, you know, the Maasai community also uh, have group ranches, which is collectively how they uh, kind of parse up their land. And he has, you know, his acreage, which his hope and dream is to eventually uh, open and run a wildlife conservation school on his land, which is, which is awesome. Um, and then Naomi's a school teacher in Kamana, um, I think in, in primary school, one of the, um, early education tracks. Um, yeah, so they live in that area. And what was your second question? You know, that's that kind of is answering it because okay. I was just wondering like about him and his connection to wildlife conservation mm -hmm. because you had mentioned in the beginning about how you wanted to go to Kenya because they seem to have discovered and continue to discover a lot of solutions in Kenya where you really look at why um, why poaching is happening, why, um, you know, um, hunting, maybe hunting more than needed is happening or, or whatever, these different things that are happening that I feel like when you are on the side of save wildlife and you're not familiar with it, it's kind of like, stop it, <laughs> stop it. Like, don't kill the elephants. Why are you killing the elephants? Stop killing the elephants. But then there's all of these like reasons behind um, why these things happen from conflict to mm -hmm. poaching to whatever. And it does feel like in that part of the world, there are so many people who are really meeting that at the truth of where it is and saying, okay, this, this is happening for reasons. How do we come up with solutions to help support people so that it's not naturally happening as often as it is and slowly kind of like phase those quote unquote bad things out by replacing them with something that can be another source of income mm -hmm. and another source of livelihood. Um, and so I, I always find that part of the world fascinating as well, because it seems like there's really a lot of solutions there. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's kind of, I think where my question was, cause I think I'm just always wanting to understand more because I haven't seen it myself. Like, what does it look like? What does life for them look like? Um, you know, what, yeah. What does life for them look like? Yeah. And it's, it's complex and I, I'm not an expert in this. I'm passionate about it and I read a lot about it and I'm learning a lot about it. So it's a really complex uh, problem with really complex challenges and solutions. So um, yeah, it's multi-layered um, and 
yeah, there's many factors and many solutions. And I do feel like, you know, Kenya is one of the countries and, and there are other con countries on the African continent, you know, who are ad addressing this as well. But I just really, you know, I'm, Kenya to me is at the forefront. And it's, um, it's also, and I would assume this is because the knowledge and the philosophy kind of feeds itself as people who live there talk to each other. But it, it is neat that um, the education slash, what's the word I'm looking for? Not the education, but the um, just the, the knowledge of there being other opportunities snowballs and kind of feeds itself within an area where people are recognizing that and then sharing it with each other. Because I was thinking how exciting it is that Naomi and Isaiah came to you with this idea, knowing, hey, there's opportunity to do something here and help the world, help animals, help the earth, help people all in like a good, solid way, right? So yeah, yeah. It's, it's neat that those conversations are happening. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we believe that, you know, when particularly women are economically empowered, you know, the environment is better managed, human wildlife conflict is reduced, and, you know, community member livelihoods are improved. So that's why we're really focusing on, um, you know, really amplifying the women, giving them access to a global market, um, an economy so they can invest in the resources that they need. You know, they drive those decisions. They know what they need for their family and their livelihood. And then also, you know, wildlife conservation is a viable livelihood in Kenya. And, um, you know, we believe women need to be at the forefront of that industry too. Um, there are a lot of women guides and conservationists and um, botanists and scientists and biologists. And so it's really, you know, making sure that, you know, girls stay in school, have access to school um, and, you know, get, get an education in conservation. Has it traditionally been a culture where the women are maybe not as equally seen as men, as in like a lot of places in the world, but that's not necessarily every place in the world. So that's my first question for you. And then about um, the efforts that you're doing to help keep the the young girls learning and in school. And is wildlife conservation kind of like the big thing that everybody wants to learn right now? Mm, great questions. Okay, I'll start with your first one. So <clears throat> the Maasai culture is definitely a patriarchal society. Um, and so that first and foremost is a barrier for women. Um, and so, and the women do everything, right? I mean, they have, um, you know, they have multiple wives, lots of children, um, and they have to cook and clean, care for their family, care for their livestock, make beaded jewelry on the side for, you know, they sell to tourists for money. Um, they are, the center of the household and they do everything. So um, <clears throat> I think the barrier for keeping girls in school is because um, the girls also have to help take care of the household, right? So they go fetch the water and the firewood. And so the boys already have an upper hand and the opportunity that I think when resources are tight and they can't pay for school fees, they keep the boys at school and they, you know, keep the girls at home to be the housekeepers and to, you know, help maintain their household. 
So, um, so there's a lot of cultural barriers for girls and women um, to receive an education. I think that is really shifting in modern times. You know, I think, um, I think that mindset is is changing. Um, so, and I just that's just a cultural shift. Um, and so then part of our scholarship is that, you know, the women collectively decided, you know, that a percentage of our proceeds helps to pay for their school fees and keep their daughters in school. And yeah, I think wildlife conservation is a viable livelihood because tourism and which I'm really worried about this last year with, you know, that industry has just been decimated because of the pandemic. So, um, you know, tourism, people come to see, you know, wildlife and um, it is a viable income and hospitality is a really big industry there. So, um, you know, people see that not only protecting, um, you know, these species who they live side by side with, um, who are on their communal lands and also in um, national parks. So there's a, there's a livelihood there and an economy for them. So, and I do think there's, you know, there is um, a really a passion to share that knowledge with, you know, visitors and guests. So we created a uh, scholarship program called Wildest Dreams. And so 10% of our jewelry sales go towards that. And our first scholarship recipient, her name is Kikito. Um, she is the first young woman in her village to move, go on to receive um, an education in wildlife conservation and community management from Kenya Wildlife Service. So we're really excited about that. And that's just a huge uh, goal for us. And, you know, collectively it's, um, you know, selling the jewelry and then, you know, giving it back to the community. That is so cool. What an incredible thing to be a part of. Do they get to share a lot of their stories with the tourists that come to town traditionally um, and or is it changing now? Do they get to share a lot of their culture and their history with people that are there? I think they do. Um, you know, I learned a lot from Isaiah and Naomi. Um, you know, they uh, speak English as well as Swahili and Maasai. Um, so I have learned about a lot about them and their culture and they're very open and they, they want you to ask questions and they want, you know, people to learn about them. They're very proud, very proud people and, and community and culture. And so, yeah, I think they're definitely willing to share and they want people to know who they are. And, and there's also a preservation for that culture and tribe too. Um, you know, I just think with modern times, you know, that language may disappear, that culture may disappear. Um, so I think it's also preserving it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's a lot, um, gosh, there's a lot to be said for preserving the cultures that are there. And, um, it, it seems like as, people on earth, we are growing to appreciate that again and trying to hold on to all of these different cultures that exist. Whereas perhaps for the past maybe 50 years or so, there was um, not like a purposeful, well, maybe there was, but I was going to say not a purposeful negating necessarily in the past like two generations, but just a um, in assimilating to speaking English or just trying to be part of um, kind of like mercantile society that maybe has taken away from people keeping their cultures and their languages 
by um, just in trade of learning English or, you know, focusing on those sorts of things. And I do feel like, I hope at least, at least the people I'm surrounded by, there's this movement and this conversation to really, really work hard to preserve all of this, the cultures and the languages and um, the very different stories that we all have to tell around the world and preserving those and keeping those and not letting them disappear. Um, so it makes me excited to hear that they're getting a chance and hopefully more tourists that come are interested like you were in asking the questions and learning a lot mm -hmm. more so that it can be preserved, I guess, through the storytelling that way, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I like to ask everybody who comes on the show is, can you share with us one simple idea that you have that listeners could try that would help animals and the environment in their daily life? I love this question. And I think that's why your podcast is so good. Um, I really truly believe that social impact and wildlife conservation are interconnected. And I think just for people to remember that and to support businesses that provide economic independence for rural women and families who live in areas with wildlife um, and where wildlife, human wildlife conflict is at risk. Um, so I think just the simple idea I have is just, you know, do your research before you buy um, and just ask yourself, do I really need this? What's its lifespan? What's its global impact and who makes it? And I think it's so easy just to do like, you know, a quick internet search or look at ethical buying guides and directories and just, just know who your makers are and where they live and reside and, and what their issues are and, and how you can really support communities um, who really rely on wildlife and live side by side with wildlife. So, um, I think as wildlife is shrinking and becoming extinct and more at risk, I think our impact as humans um, is becoming more and more, um, you know, necessary. Yeah. And we need, we need to be really be aware of that. Mm. Yeah. I love that idea. And I, I feel like, um, you know, it's it's obvious. I feel like when you peel back the layer and you start looking for the story behind a product before you purchase it, it's usually pretty obvious whether yeah. it's doing a lot of good in the world or not. It, it basically the or not is silence and you can't figure out where it came from mm -hmm. or how it was made or anything. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's usually pretty clear on most of these brands, uh, at least in my experience when when brands are doing a lot of good in the world, it's usually pretty clear to it see is. that. I think transparency is really important. And even, you know, there are really good curators and stores and businesses out there who are making that easier for you. So if you don't have time to do the research, you know, follow these blogs and follow these brands and these directories and these stores because they're curating it for you. And, you know, and they are looking at you know, the ethics of it, of their labor, um, the sustainability, the social justice impact, you know, the human impact and the environmental impact. So um, there are a lot of resources that make it easy. So do you, can you think of any of your favorites off the top of your head? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely my heart is with Kirico. I think they're doing it really well. Um, they're just a local shop, but also, you know, available online. Um, I think Sustainable Jungle is another one I look at a lot. They do really well curated. You know, they look at brands. They've got a checklist, you know, if it meets their, you know, is it vegan? Is it made sustainably? Who, you know, is it made ethically? So they're there are a lot of like checklists that they go through and they do the research for you. I really like that one. Um, so those are the the ones that I go to a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I love that. And, and I do think there are um, a couple of ones that I love that I'll share quickly too are right. fair trade wins. Um, mm-hmm. Fair trade wins is one that I really like. Um, Wear well, which most people know when it comes to the clothing side of it, I really like their, um, their criteria. And yeah, like you said, I think there's just um, more and more popping up. And I also think um, our friends can be good resources too, right? If you, um, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, Double whammy, right? Because when you're talking about it with your friends, you're all influencing each other and you're helping each other find find good resources. So um, yeah, I, I love that you pointed out that piece as well, that we can go to um, brands, aggregators that curate these pieces and do all of the hard work for us um, if you're not able to easily find pieces yourself. So yeah, yeah. that is yeah. wonderful. And then you're supporting their their small business. So it's, it's definitely a trickle down effect. It's yeah. I love that. Um, so to get a hold of you, what is the best way for someone to reach out to talk to you if they would like to? Yeah. So, um, Kimber elements at Gmail is our email account. Um, also, you know, look us online at KimberElements.com. There's also a form that you could fill out to contact us. Um, and then also we're on Instagram at KimberElements. So can email DM us at any time there too. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And then to shop, um, what is the best place to shop and how does it work when someone um, pr- puts in an order? Do you already have the pieces? Just tell me quickly about how the logistics of that work. Mm, our production line. We're still yeah. figuring that out. <laughs> Um, so this last year was our launch year. So we launched, you know, during a pandemic, we launched um, our line um, in September 2020. And that was our launch line. So we've been doing some focus groups. Uh, it is available at Cura Co. in Seattle. So um, mostly doing direct to consumer. So it's available on our website, KimberlMets.com. And slowly kind of easing into wholesale orders. So one of our partners who helps us distribute our scholarships is Big Life Foundation. And we did our first wholesale order with them, which was a perfect proof of concept of our partnership and our relationship. So they um, did a custom order of two types of earrings. And that's a beautiful partnership because they also work very closely. They're um, have a very big presence in that community, um, in the Savo Amboseli ecosystem. They really do employ a lot of the Maasai um, warriors as um, wildlife uh, guardians and so and rangers. And so they're very much invested in that community. So it's really great that the women um, who they, they know in that region um, with also supporting them with this wholesale order of their earrings. So that's our first order. Um, I am open um, to hearing if people would be interested um, in doing unique lines. So um, 
yeah, we're just trying to figure out what our design capacity is. And I think this next fall, we're going to, you know, do a fall line. So we're slowly kind of easing into a regular production mode. You know, it's all just kind of based on the volume that we can handle and produce. Right now, it's really unique and small. And I think once we figure out our process and our systems, we'll be able to do larger scale orders. Let's wrap up with quickly recapping. When someone purchases a piece of jewelry from you, it helps all these different things. Can you recap for me what they are? You got it. So it's preserving traditional craft and celebrating their traditional handicraft. Um, it's uh, creating a sustainable livelihood for the women that we're working with who also reinvest their wages into community micro businesses. And it's also supporting our artisans' daughters to uh, pursue a career in wildlife conservation. And um, we also work with uh, two other partners. So like I said, Big Life Foundation is one of our partners who help distribute our scholarships. And then we also work with a other nonprofit in Kenya called Wildlife Works who create our handcrafted jewelry bags. And they're a fair trade apparel factory who also provide dignified jobs to the local community. And those bags are made out of either dead stock fabric from their clothing production line or um, scraps from their production line too. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. If you enjoyed the show, will you do me a favor and tell one of your friends? We're still a new show and we're still working hard to reach more people who are looking for ways that they can make a difference. If you personally are looking to jumpstart your arsenal of ideas for making a difference, try checking out our free five-step conscious lifestyle challenge. You can find that at foranimalsforearth.com slash lifestyle challenge. Next week, I will be back with five simple things that you can do for Earth Day in one of our bi-weekly solo, it's just me, episodes. So I will see you then. In the meantime, have a good week. Bye.